Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Friends, it's time for Brewing After Hours with Sarah Flora. Hi, I'm Sarah Flora. You may know me as Flora Brewing on Instagram and YouTube, where I dive into the technical aspects of making beer. My new podcast, Brewing After Hours, is going to take a different look at the history and stories behind beer. I'm going to bring you a story a week, as well as conversations with homebrewers and professionals in the industry. And of course, we'll be cracking some beers along the way. Welcome to Brewing After Hours. I'm Sarah Flora. On this week's episode, you'll learn about wild yeast, foraging, and how a brewery in Vermont is taking sustainability very seriously, including their focus on becoming a net zero company. This is something I have always found fascinating and hope to do for my own brewery soon, so this conversation was so much fun. Before we hear from our guest, let's talk about wild yeast. Where's wild yeast? You'll pretty much find it all over the place lives in the air, on plants, fruits, and trees. If you want to learn more about yeast found in the weirdest places, check out one of my earlier podcast episodes where I dive into that exact topic. While most brewers use commercial yeast since it's a safer option, there's something really special about capturing your own wild yeast and connecting with your local environment. The yeast that you find on plants and insects that is used in baking, brewing, winemaking, and so on is called Saccharomyces. A French chemist and microbiologist named Louis Pasteur actually made quite a few discoveries in microbial fermentation, vaccination, and pasteurization, obviously. He's also known as the father of microbiology. In 1856, one of his students approached him for some advice on beetroot alcohol and souring, which is how he started researching and sharing his findings on alcohol fermentation. He discovered that yeast was necessary for fermentation to produce alcohol from sugar. If you'd like to learn more about his work, you should check out pasturefoundation.org. Now, there are hundreds of different yeast strains and even more if you end up sourcing your yeast locally. Foraging for yeast is a chance to connect with the land where you live, and it's also a great story to tell, right? If you'd like to give this a try at home, here's what you'll need. A mason jar, cheesecloth, testing strips, fermentation, airlock, and sanitizer. For the mason jar lid, you'll need to drill a hole for the airlock. To capture the yeast, you'll also need wort. To make your wort, you'll need dried malt extract, hops, and lactic acid. When you start to prepare for capturing your wild yeast, remember the weather and temperature do play a big factor. Evenings are usually the best time to do this, and springtime and fall are typically also better than, like, the heat of the summer because algae, you know, what grows in your pool. So once you're all prepped, find a few spots to leave the mason jars close to plants and trees and make sure to avoid areas where there may be animals or sewage pipes so it doesn't get contaminated. If you think about trees that smell 
a lot, like your fruit trees, like orange trees is what I always think of trying to source yeast from. If you grab an orange and there's white stuff on the outside, a lot of that is actually natural yeast. So just think about things like fruit. It typically has more wild yeast on it than like grass. Leave the mason jar outside for about 10 hours or just overnight, and then the wort will need to ferment for about two weeks. You will be able to tell if your yeast is viable by the smell, actually. So if it starts to smell gross, toss it. If it smells like beer, you can actually use that yeast. And there you go. You can have wild yeast right in your backyard and make your own house sour. Now let's hear from our guest, Chris Gagne, co-owner and brewmaster of Hermit Thrush Brewery in Brattleboro, Vermont, about brewing with wild yeast, sourcing ingredients locally, and their goals of becoming a net zero brewery. Welcome to the show. It's really great to have you on to share your expertise on sourcing ingredients locally, as well as environmentally friendly ways to manage a brewery. So let's start from the beginning. Uh, How did Hermit Thrush Brewing come to be? Well, I guess the very beginning is Avery and I had a radio show in college together and uh, collaborated on music and cooking in a late night uh, radio spot. And that was a blast. And then sort of fast forward five years, I had started home brewing. He was definitely primary taste tester and, and key feedback and help. You know, we sort of were exploring sour beer together while home brewing for a little while. And then essentially got back together after he was in Canada for a little while. And Vermont was looking like the beautiful place to be. And we did a yeast see that that confirmed things. And we were sort of this long series of happenstance unfolded where we happened upon this absolutely beautiful yeast source in southern Vermont that I I just haven't found a I haven't found a comparison for. You know, it was homebrew having fun and random collaborative sillinesses and plenty of love for sort of staunch Belgian tradition brewing and uh, cool ship methods and lambic style aging and you know, we we were fortunate enough to find a place where the, the yeast is very happy to cooperate. It's so interesting that you kind of uh, built your brewery around this kind of yeast. It's always really fascinating to me when brewers who are like obviously total beer nerds and just like super interested in all the weird things you can do with it, create breweries because it's like inevitably becomes a very interesting and unique brewery over someone who's like going into it for profit. Yeah, the passion project uh, gets a little weirder and a little more exciting sometimes. <laughs> oh, yeah. And those are always the best breweries to visit because you're like, oh, I can come nerd out with the brewer and like learn a ton of stuff versus like, oh, yeah, you have a Pilsner, you have a IPA, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear about hops a little bit late in general, but you know, the new varieties are are hitting fruit flavor profiles that we love to hit with yeast. So it's it's fun to see all the different methods of a of, of vast array of, of the industry. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. All the like mango hops that are coming out are really like 
hitting exactly what I want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Juicy IPAs is where it's at. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it, the fad will die eventually. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, I think it's also still in the process of improving. I don't know. You know, I think all, all of these little niche beer categories that have really come up in the last five years or so are are really just in their naissance of the epicness they can become. I think double IPAs and sour beer both have like years left to improve and, and expand upon the, the weirdness we've made so far. I'm really excited for juicier and juicier dippas and um, our, our sours are getting better every year. I always say the best beer we'll brew is next year. Yeah. And I feel like people are moving away from the like super tart, like punch you in the face sourness and into more subtle, just like lovely, like really accentuating the wild yeast over the lactic. So Hermit Thrush is all sour. But the brewery specializes in using wild mixed culture yeast right out of their town of Brattleboro. So can you share more on how your house culture developed? You know, part of citing ourselves in Brattleboro was doing a cool ship study of New England. So we sort of had an idea of where we wanted to live. But if you're starting an all sour brewery and you're trying to not ever use non-wild yeast, then you really need to make sure you're in a good source. <laughs> We sort of did some wind and water studies and, and looking for healthy woodlands and, and orchards and such. And essentially, we cool ship tiny little homebrew batches in, in about 40 different places. And Brattleboro just turned up as the loveliest of the lot. It's, the Brett profile is really like light and delicate and kind of straw-like. Um, the, the fruity on the yeast and the lacto profile, the fruitiness is really like stone fruit like apricot to, to citrus and that really blends in well on the kettle sour side when the lacto is a little more focused than on the barrel age side and we just found almost no acetobacter here and so it was this lovely and acetobacters you know turn stuff to vinegar it's not not you don't want it and so it's just this absolutely lovely profile that was right here and we found it three different times in a year and it, it was changing but consistent you know you want some amount of, of intrigue to a barrel aging program because if you brew a, a golden ale in the spring and a golden ale in the fall, they could be the same. But, but also if they're different and not necessarily better than one or the other, the variation can just be absolutely beautiful for the blending process. And so we saw, we just saw, tracked this yeast over a little while and then we get, you know, decided to open up and, and started moving on it. And uh, it's just, it's really served us well ever since. That sounds amazing. It's so interesting that you use one culture, but you can do so many different things with it, like kettle souring and then just different aging and different seasons really affects it. And, and in essence, part of that is, is using aspects of the culture and different environments that make the culture respond to different ways, right? So within our, the culture that is here, over the course of like a full year, there's like 180 different strains between Saccharomyces, Britannomyces, Lactobacillus and Pediococcus. And you get different stuff at different seasons. And so you can selectively pitch some stuff. And, and kettle souring is just a whole other, you know, process, which is is an incredible emerging field, I think. We're going to see that go far in the next five years. It's fascinating. At the base, beer wants to be made. And so if you if you are making it in the way that it wants to be made locally, it ends up being much more complex than you can write in a recipe. You also source your ingredients from local farms. This means like you're still staying with the super local, you know, 
biome that's essentially around where you are. Can you talk about some recent partnerships and the resulting brews? Yeah, we've we've got a lot of great food producers around us that so we're we're pretty grateful for that. We work with Dunn Farm and Scott Farm for a lot of orchard fruits, apples and berries. We've gotten ginger locally, which I was very surprised about. Full Plate Farm grows ginger in a greenhouse. I didn't know that ginger could grow in Vermont. It's pretty, pretty cool. <laughs> and we get real, you know, Maine wild blueberries for our party jam blueberry, uh, which we're, we're really stoked on. But since we opened in 2014, we've actually only ever bought hops from Four Star Farms, which is probably our most significant partnership. They're 20 minutes south of us in Northfield, Mass, and they're a well-kept secret. So I hesitate to say them too much, but they grow like New Zealand-style hops in Western Massachusetts. The the like juicy like profiles are really interesting. They have weird stuff and awesome citrus, and we love a bunch of hops that they have that we haven't even seen anywhere else that, that they sort of went foraging for and are growing some new stuff. So we're just delighted to be able to, to get hops locally. And, and as we looked at a few hop yards, Four Star was just way, way ahead in terms of being able to offer tropical fruits and, and some of the more exotic stuff that we really thought was going to become a big player. And so it's, it's really fun because we, we don't buy New Zealand hops. We don't like pay shipping from you know, across the world. We, but we still, I think we still get some of those same flavor profiles. So you know, we're we're doing the sour double IPA recently that has been in research for a couple of years, honestly, and just really grapefruit, peach kind of spectrum and a little bit of tartness. And it's really not very bitter at all, which I think helps lift the whole thing. Sour and bitter, I think, can, can sometimes conflict, but it's just this like really gentle, like fruity hop character that has nothing to do with like Pacific Northwest, you know, pine citrus. And yet it still is an American and local hop. I just, so I just love it. You know, I always find that when I am trying to use local ingredients, I almost find that it makes the beers that result more creative. Do you think that like limiting yourself makes what you're making kind of like more out of the box and unexpected? Totally. If, if I was imagining things based on what I'd tasted before, then we wouldn't have arrived at any of the conclusions we have. It, you know, art within constraints is difficult, but exceedingly complex, I think. And you can't ever make, you know, if you're cooking, like you can't ever make a dish that's better than its ingredients. So if we're, if we're trying to make like the best sours that we can possibly make and only use wild yeast, we do some pretty crazy stuff on, on the barrel age side. And so you know, you really just need to lean into what's available to you and identify what is the most beautiful thing about what is around you and how do you lift that up and engage it in in harmony with the other beautiful things from around you in, in the in the rest of the profile. And so, you know, so in some ways it's easy mode for us because our yeast is like apricot, pecan, uh, you know, light funk and then four stars the hops are are you know passion fruit guava you know strawberry jasmine and and so it it works it works pretty well well it kind of makes sense that it would work well because it's all like grown within like what an hour of you so it's always like how every culture has their like distinct flavors it's like also every locality has their distinct flavors and they all kind of like meld together really well i've found like 
I'm in LA, so we have all the citrus and avocados. But then when I go up to Washington, it's berries and like fiddlehead ferns that are kind of nutty and like earthy, nutty. Um, and then like they're rich berries versus like bright citrus. And it's, you know, it's all climate and it all works together, I think, because it has grown up together. Yeah, definitely. The localness of food is just great on all sides. It's good for your neighbors and it's good for your palate. <laughs> you and Hermit Thrush Brewing, your team seem to be leading the way when it comes to sustainability. And honestly, looking at your program, it's like exactly what I would want if I ever start my brewery. In your interview with Good Beer Hunting, that your goal is to eventually be a net zero brew house. So what steps are you taking to accomplish this? Well, I'll say in the first place that making wild yeast-based sour beer is the lowest possible utility spend on a pint of beer that that you can do because we don't we don't need refrigeration while we're aging the beer for years. We don't need refrigeration on the kettle sours um, either while they're fermenting. There, there's you know the beer is uh, a lot more stable because it's generally more dry. It's it's got a lower final gravity typically, and so our package stability is really high. Um, and so, it, in some ways, you know, we are thrilled to not have like a five thousand square foot walk-in cooler. We just have our draft cooler that serves our tap room, um, and it's you know we package it and we ship it, and the barrel aged stuff is good for years, and and so it works out that we just. Our, our baseline is, uh, you know, 70% less refrigeration than the normal brewery. So that's really awesome. But then looking forward, we, you know, we, we're in 10 states in DC now. And, and so we are, and we're running a seven barrel brew house just all of the time. And so we are, we're sort of long overdue for, for some production increases, but we are, committed to the environment and you know we need to stop leaving or we need to start leaving fossil fuels in the ground and so we are you know taking our time with sort of an innovative utility plan that i think is going to leverage some regional uh, green energy sources with also some uh some uh, essentially phase change energy storage tanks and if you really break it down brewing is the the addition and and removal of heat to various volumes of liquids at various temperatures at various times, right? So if you have heat storage batteries based on like ice, if you have cold storage batteries based on ice, if you can just bounce the heat around and just dramatically change how we think of brewing. Right now we think of brewing as you put in energy while you're brewing the beer, making the hot side, and maybe you pull some energy out when you reclaim heat on the on the knockout and then you're putting in cold for the fermentation rather than you're brewing and fermenting at the same time why don't you why aren't you just putting the heat from the fermentation into the brew so we're we're working with some great minds up here in, in vermont and green energy uh, folks and we are working on engineering a totally epic utility plan at no determined date in the future um it, you know I, I think i think it is important to realize that like Economic growth is nice and people wanting more beer is nice. But also if we're using wood pellets right now and we're not using oil in our, at least our brewing process, certainly there's supply chain and everything. But if we're doing that right now, we should not do something worse to just make more beer. So I'm excited to 
make more beer in the future. And we're, we're in the contemplative phase rather than the rush. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's really noble to just kind of take a step back and, you know, not rush forward, even though you could. And I mean, you're innovating. So, you know, innovation takes time. I mean, I think you will be an example for a lot of breweries in the future. I definitely have to say too, you know, I look to others as well. Like New Belgium is doing incredible stuff on sustainability. You know, I, there's tons and tons of, of breweries that are are doing the hard work. But yeah, there's a lot of engineering to be done still. And, you know, I think I think it's easier to get green when you're a really, really big brewery. So we're, we're hoping to develop a plan and, and, you know, hopefully share it with other people. So it's easy to implement for others that are sort of in the, in the smaller range. So I actually had a question about your uh, wood pellet boiler system solely out of a selfish interest, because at one point I did have a pellet stove kind of situation. And I want to know how similar this is, because that thing was a bit of a nightmare. And like the nice thing was it made everything smell like lovely pine. But, you know, it's like, okay, I'm burning a fire in my house. Yeah, we, it, we so we run two uh, Burnham steam boilers off of Pelogy burners and, you know, have like a really tall chimney to boot. And so we we have a lot of controls and automatic auger feeds on ours that are, you know, we, we keep really dialed in. You know, our brew house team doesn't just know how to make beer. They also know how to manually run a wood pellet boiler. So... <laughs> They're they're definitely juggling a lot and and keeping on the the mechanics of it and you know we we clean it out every fifty or hundred runtime hours so there's definitely some increased maintenance compared to fossil fuels but we just you know we can't get over just climate change and so you know we, we're we're definitely going to keep running this even though it is I, I would say it's a little bit more difficult technically than than running traditional fuels so. That's fascinating. It's like so old school that it's like futuristic almost. <laughs> you guys obviously have a ton of exciting developments coming out. Is there anything that you want everyone to know that you're doing next year? Any new beers coming out? Yeah, we are. We are very excited to be adding some more outdoor seating. So if anybody is is traveling in our area, we, we will be more able to accommodate you than last summer. We were a bit jam-packed last summer, but um, and I'll also say we are, it started sort of tongue-in-cheek, but then we were really like amazed at how tasty they were actually. So we, we've gotten into the hard seltzer game and <laughs> there's, a, there's a series called Sunset Lake that's uh, only been available in Vermont so far, but we're hoping to start spreading that to our wholesalers. And we also have a still secret but very exciting uh, oak fruiter aged seltzer in process that is uh, slated for mid to late summer and is looking great. <laughs> you know, what other wild fermented live culture seltzer out there is there? I, I don't know. It's it's going to be fun. <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting. How would you compare the flavor of your seltzer to like your typical run of the mill? Like I've drank truly and I've had like a couple craft versions that I'm like, eh, I don't know. It just kind of tastes like Kool-Aid. <laughs> it's subtler, I think, than the Kool-Aid types. It's more tart than the truly stuff. And we only use real fruit and real botanicals. So 
you know, the grapefruit rosemary is really, really nice. I think that's one of my favorites. That is exactly what flavor I want. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, you know, <laughs> so I think, I think it's, it's there. I'm, I've been really thrilled with them, you know, and I, I have pretty high standards and I'm a, I'm a good lambic, like food, Belgium, like traditionalist at heart, but oh my goodness, they're actually, these seltzers are really good. <laughs> I've been planning uh, to make one. I'm not like a huge fan of any of them. So like, uh, honestly, I'm going to have to uh, make a grapefruit rosemary one. So I'm taking that idea. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Yeah. A little juice, a little peel and definitely fresh rosemary. And it's just, it's kicker. And then, you know, we're, we're doing like mango cardamom, which is like a, a little warmer pear. We've got, well, and we've got a raspberry spruce tip that's just really, really fun as well. You know, more, more flavors than that. But it's, it's just so fun working with a tart seltzer too, because I think, I think, you know, people like a little bit of tartness in, in beverage in general. And I think a lot of the seltzers are just trying to be as close to water or as close to Kool-Aid as they can be. And I'm like, I'm trying to throw a little lemonade in it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Like I'm realizing that I like anything with an acid in it, anything sour, anything lemony. I mean, acid is one of the key, you know, five richnesses. There's salt, sugar, acid, fat, and umami. And, you know, any food or drink that has more of those things as, as flavor elements is just going to taste more. It's, you know, it's just going to be more exciting. I, I don't know how to put fat in a seltzer in a, in a good way, so I'm not going to do that. But, but the acidity is a really nice addition. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I'm obviously a home brewer and a lot of my listeners are. So from one home brewer to another, what advice do you have for those looking to make the move to commercial brewer? And I think your insight into this is actually really valuable because I think you are literally creating the brewery of the future being so sustainable and so local. Thank you. Yeah, we, we hope to. And, uh, you know, I, I think that the most important thing is to focus. We are focused on sustainability and we're focused on sours. We don't, we don't do anything else. Everybody keeps asking us, when are you going to do a lager? When are you going to do a not sour double IPA? And we're just, we're just not because there's great stuff on the market for those categories. And if we stray from our, our core passion, then we're going to stop innovating. And that is the road to boring beer. So, you know, I, I think I think focus is is key. Find your niche, do it really well. You know, the the bar is set pretty high, I think, in a lot of regions of craft beer. Um, so there's some regions that are a little bit behind in terms of their their palate evolution. So, you know, identify where your region is culturally and, and kind of focus and, and, and do your niche within that context, no matter what the context is, because they'll learn eventually. If like there weren't random sour breweries in LA, like I would have never gotten so into sour beers and like all the wild fermentation. I just went to those because we were having some homebrew clubs there. I would have never picked it out <laughs> on my own. So yeah, visit your local breweries. That is super important because you can change the taste of your region. Yeah. Identify your market context and then do your passion within it. Well, thanks so much, Chris. This was amazing. 
it was fantastic picking your brain and I will keep an eye on what you're doing with your net zero brewery. I can't wait to see when you have it all set up. That's going to be awesome. Um, do you want to tell everyone where we can keep up with Hermit Thrush and see what you're up to? Yeah, Instagram's probably best. We're at Brattlebeer. Um, that's our, you know, we're in Brattleboro and uh, you'll find us if you search Hermit Thrush Brewery as well. We are at 29 High Street in Brattleboro, Vermont. So if you're in the region, stop on by for some outdoor safe seating. Awesome. Thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Cheers. Listening to Brewing After Hours on the Believe Podcast Network. Find the show and lots of other great shows at Believe.com. If you're digging the show, please subscribe and rate the show on your preferred streaming platform. A special thank you to Honus Honus, the lyrical genius behind my favorite band, Man Man, who created the song you hear at the beginning of my podcast. Check the band's new album and more at manmanbands.com and at manmanbandband on Instagram. If you're looking for some homebrewing tips, make sure to follow me on Instagram at Flora underscore brewing or subscribe to Flora Brewing on YouTube. For ad-free brewing tutorials and reviews, plus more one-on-one experience, become a Patreon member. It's just Patreon backslash Flora Brewing. Now, I really need a drink. I'll catch up with you all next week. Thanks again for listening and a friendly reminder to support your local craft brewery. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.